I want to start off this morning with a question. If you had to lose one of your five senses, which one would it be? And we'll take a survey here. Um, so the five senses, if, in case you don't know, uh, taste, touch, smell, hearing, and sight. Am I leaving any of them out? No one here has a sixth sense, do they, of seeing dead people? All right, so we'll do a survey. So think about that for a minute. Uh, taste, touch, smell, hearing, and sight. Which one would it be okay? If you had to lose one, which one would it be? And so now that you've thought about it, let's think about this. Here, I'll do a survey very quickly. Um, by show of hands, so if you, say, um, if you say taste, taste would be the one that you'd get rid of. Raise your hand. Taste. Taste. So you guys are not food snobs. All right, the next one would be touch. Like you can't feel anything, right? Touch. A handful of you. So as you're walking through life, it feels like you're always levitating, floating. That'd be kind of cool. Um, you couldn't feel any pain. All right, smell. Who would say smell? Yes, because there's all kinds of smells that you don't want to have to smell, right? All right, uh, now how about hearing? Hearing. You would rather lose hearing. Hearing, really? Wow, two of you, three of you. Um, all right, the last one is sight. Who wants to lose their sight? Two people. So I, I need to know. I, I expected this would be the case. It would be the smallest number. But So why would you say sight? He's like, I just wanted to be different. Now I don't really know why I said that. If you don't have a reason, just say you don't have a reason. Just, you did have a reason. Sight's the least important? Man. Well, I don't know. So, listen, listen. So, today we're looking at a story in John chapter 9. Turn to John chapter 9. And this is a story about a blind man from birth. Turn to John chapter 9, looking at verse 1. And um, one of Jesus' famous miracles. And we're looking at uh, John chapter 9, verse 1. Here's what it says. It says, as he passed by, meaning Jesus, he saw a man blind from birth. So what you see in the story, first off, is that Jesus always notices people that no one else pays attention to, right? He always notices the people that no one else takes notice of and has compassion on them. Uh, he saw a man blind from birth. So imagine being blind from birth. Like you, you've never seen anything in your life. You have no rep. When someone says a color, you have no reference for what that means. When someone says a tree, now you, maybe you've touched a tree. You've never actually seen a tree. Um, if someone says anything, any word, you have no idea what it looks like. You, you've maybe touched it or you, you maybe have um, walked past it and, um, and put your hands on a wall and known that that wall is what they refer to as a house, but I've never actually seen a house in its entirety, right? And so um, I would imagine that sight would be the most terrifying sense for us to lose with the exception of two guys in the room. Everyone else agrees with me. Um, but I think sight would be the hardest thing for us to lose and, and live without because you're just, you feel like you're totally helpless if you don't have your sight. Everything else you can make do with, but your sight, you feel like you are dependent on everybody else around you um, if you don't have your sight. And so um, look what happens in verse 2. 
It says, and his disciples asked him. So there's a blind guy there. They've noticed a blind guy. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Now, is that not a strange question for someone to ask? Um, if, if you're with Jesus, just picture this. If you're with Jesus and there's a blind guy sitting there, is that the question that you're going to be asking Jesus? Like right in front of the blind guy, you're asking the question, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he's born blind? I mean, just take this to a, a modern-day context. If we're on a mission trip, um, like we do many times here at TBC, um, and, and we're feeding the homeless out on the streets, and imagine this, if, if one of you is with me and we're walking past a homeless guy, and, and right there in front of the homeless guy, instead of us walking over to the guy and talking to him and, and saying hi to him and reaching out to him, if we're standing there in front of this guy on the street and we start off this, this conversation where you say to me, um, man, Dave, this guy looks really poor and impoverished and in bad shape. Um, Dave, you know, who do you think, uh, why do you think this guy is the way that he, that he is right now? Do you think maybe it's education? Do you think maybe he's a drunkard, uh, maybe a drug addict? Um, maybe his parents uh, sinned and caused him to have to live this way? I mean, Dave, what do you think about this guy right here, in, in front of us right here? You know, the guy that can hear everything we're saying right now, right? And so this, this conversation breaks out in front of this blind guy, and, um, and you can see right away that there's a detachment, right? Like the disciples are just having this theological conversation about this guy who's blind. There's not a real a care for him and a compassion for him. It's just this Let's have a theological conversation about why this guy got the way that he is. And so it might be a, a weird question also for us because most of us don't look at someone who's suffering and think, our first thought is, okay, who sinned, this person or their parents, that they're born this way? That's not really in our frame of reference, is it, in our culture? But in, in their culture, here's what happened, um, how they viewed suffering in that day. They believe that suffering resulted from sin, always. So if you suffered, it meant that you had it coming to you. It meant that, well, you must have done something, um, maybe your parents did something, and now you're reaping the consequences, or maybe that they even believe you could sin inside the womb. Really. Now, I don't know what kind of sins you can commit inside the womb if you, like, kick your mom real hard or something. I don't know how that works. But they really believe, listen, listen, they really believe that you could sin inside the womb. Now, I will say this. We believe you're born with a sin nature, and you're born into sin, right? We're not saying that you come out um, like a, as a baby, like a clean slate, like just neutral. We do believe you're born with a sin nature. I'm not discounting that. But they believe that you could actually commit some kind of sin in the womb that might lead to you being born with a deformity or some kind of uh, disability. And so they also believe you can be punished for the sins of your parents. Now, it's true in today's culture as well that um, it, it might appear to some people that, 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 that you guys or students your age can reap the consequences um, of your sins, of the sins of your parents. Hey, guys, I need everyone to kind of like just focus this morning. If you're on your phones for other reasons besides Scripture, just turn this direction. 
I just feel there's a lot of like just chaos. I'm looking out just seeing chaos, kind of just like talking and goofing off and whatnot. So just pay attention. Um, look into the scriptures if you have your phones open, but not anything else. So I'd appreciate that. So, um, so they believe that, that a parent's sin might lead to someone having a disability. And it might be true that in, in our culture today, um, somebody could reap the consequences of their parent's sin. Like, for example, if someone does drugs when they have a, a kid in their womb, or if someone does, um, al- ha- has an alcoholic addiction when they're pregnant, that can obviously lead to, like, a, a, a problem for the child, right? They can reap those consequences. But they had a different kind of take on this sin and suffering connection. They really believe that your parents could do something that was not connected to the pregnancy itself, and, and that God would just strike that kid down with some kind of disability as a punishment on the parents for their sin. And so I think, um, I think you can imagine this guy as he struggles with blindness from, from day one. That's all he's ever known. That a guy like this would think, you know, what, what did my parents do? Or what did I do that I don't even know about that caused me to be this way? Why was I born this way? Why was I born into this family? Why was I born at this time in this way? And it's a question that I know many of you probably asked of, of your own families, of, of why, why is my family the way that it is? Why um, am I reaping the consequence for something that someone else did many, many years ago? And there are ways that we struggle with the same kinds of questions. So even though theologically I would say that they, would, they were wrong to think that his suffering came from his parents, or his own sin in the womb, um, he's still wrestling with this question in the same way that many of you probably have wrestled with a similar question, and that is, why was I born in this family the way that I am, and why, why did God allow this to happen to me and my family? And it's a question that I think many people have. Um, look down at verse, uh, at verse 4. Actually, I'm sorry, look at uh, verse 3. It says, Jesus answered him, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. So sometimes God allows suffering for the simple reason that he wants to display his glory in the situation. And so he's answering their question with this. It's not that he was, it's not that he was born into this disability because of his parents' sin or his own sin, but for this moment, this man was allowed to live in blindness until this moment so that I can glorify myself with what I'm about to do. Look at verse 4. He says, We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. Now, do you guys want to know why Jesus spits on the ground and makes mud and then puts it on this man's eyes? Do you guys want to know the answer to that question? Um, I don't know the answer to that question. But here's what we do know. We know Jesus. Now, could Jesus have just spoken the words and healed this guy? He could have done this. He could have just said, hey, you're healed, and you're healed. But for some reason, Jesus spits onto the ground and makes mud and then puts it on the man's eyes and tells him to go and wash in this pool. Now, 
we don't know for sure why he did this, but there are some there is some speculation. Uh, some people think that Jesus was it was like another act of creation. Like you know when um, in Genesis it talks about uh, we're made from what the dust, right? That God took dust and He created mankind. Now. The question I know you're wondering is, why couldn't God just have spoken us into existence? Why did God have to take even dust and create mankind? And I can't answer that question for you either. I'm full of non-answers this morning. And so God took dust and made Adam and Eve. And um, here he takes dust, he takes mud, and he puts it on this man's face. And some people think that this is like another, a reference to creation, the creation story that God is recreating this man's vision. And so he, he puts dust on this man's face in the same way that he creates us from the dust in Genesis. Look at verse 8. It says, The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, It is he. Others said, No, but he is like him. He kept saying, I am the man. I love that sentence. Uh, so they said to him, Then how were your eyes opened? And he answered, The man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, Where is he? He said, I don't know. He's like me this morning. I don't know. Um, So imagine this scene. Here's a guy who's never seen anything before. So now he can see trees. Now he can see people. I mean, imagine being a dude and seeing a woman for the first time in your life. Wow, right? Imagine that. I don't know how old this guy is, but imagine this. He's never, I mean, he's like, dudes are ugly, but ladies are not ugly, right? And for the first time in his life, he sees the female species, right? First time. And he's like, praise Jesus. And so he's, he's just wowed by all the things that he sees. He's just blown away at, at being able to see for the first time. So listen, listen. So this guy is blind since birth, and he can finally see. And all these guys can talk about is, wait, how did you get this way? How did you get fixed? Like, how, who did this? We're going to find him. Who did this, Right? We'll come back to this part in just a moment. But you can see that their hearts aren't properly set up for Jesus yet, right? Um, With that, I want you to go ahead and discuss your first uh, four questions. Go ahead and do questions one through four. Let's pick back up in verse 13. Look down at... uh, Verse 13 in John chapter 9. And verse 13 says, it says, they brought to the Pharisees. Now, whenever you're reading the Gospels and you see the word Pharisees, it's the part of the story where um, things are starting to get bad. And so it's, it's the time where you need to cue up the uh, sort of the, the, um, the creepy music, you know. And, um, and when they enter the picture, things start to go badly. So... Verse 13, they brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now, it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened up his eyes. 
Something else that always goes badly is when they link up Pharisees with Sabbath and Jesus' healing. Those three things are like a perfect storm and always lead to um, a big controversy. So it's a Sabbath day. So Sabbath is um, what day of the week back then? It's a Saturday. So the Jews would celebrate Sabbath on Saturday. That was their day of rest. Um, Does anyone know why um, we celebrate? We don't call it Sabbath. We just call it day of worship, Sunday. But why do we um, go to church on Sundays? You guys know why we do that? Yeah, Jesus rose from the dead on Sunday. So when Jesus rose from the dead on Sunday, um, the church in its early days decided to start worshiping on Sunday instead of on Saturday. So essentially that means that every Sunday could be considered Easter Sunday for you. So tell that to your parents. Every Sunday I want a chocolate bunny, right? Because that's what Easter is all about, right? Um, You tell them I said that. All right, so look back in verse uh, 14. Now, it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened up his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him, where was I? I can't see this print. Verse, so the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, he put mud on my eyes and I washed and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. So just get this for a second. So this man gets healed, but because it's on a Sabbath, um, these really smart Pharisees, so the Pharisees were like the the religious elite, the educated of the educated. They're the ones that had robes that they got from the dry cleaners, like just all their stuff is pressed, everything's perfect. They're really smart guys. They're the professors of the day. So they conclude, listen, this man is healed on the Sabbath, And they have this conclusion. Jesus can't be God because he healed a guy on the Sabbath. And God would never do that. God knows the rules. God knows the law. That you don't heal anybody on the Sabbath. So these really smart guys, the ones that determined that. And look on in verse, uh, in verse, uh, where are we? Verse 16. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? So the really dumb guy in the back of the room, he's like, hey, I have a question. If he healed a guy, that might mean he's God. Just going to say, that might be a clue And the Pharisees freak out, and there's a division. So watch this. Look. And there was a division among them. So they said again to the blind man, what do you say about him since he's opened your eyes? And now this guy's scared because he knows if he says Jesus Christ is God, that he's going to get kicked out, kicked out of the synagogue. So he says, "Uh, um, all of the above, he's a prophet, right? I'm going to say there's something significant about this man, but I'm not going to say he's God because that's going to lead to bad things for me. So he says he's a prophet, all right? And so, um, so here's why I think, here's another reason why I think Jesus is doing the mud thing, making mud, mud soup, and putting it on this guy's face, is because, listen, the Pharisees also had another rule. Not only, apparently, even if you're God, you can't even heal on the Sabbath. 
But not only that, but you can't um, knead dough, like make bread, or you can't like make mud on the Sabbath. So I think, I think maybe, we don't know for sure, but I think maybe Jesus is saying, you know what, not only am I going to heal this guy, but I'm going to make mud right in front of the Pharisees. So they see me working on the Sabbath, so I can heal this guy, and do a double whammy on the Pharisees. This is why I think he may be doing the mud thing on the Sabbath. So, like, so let's get this straight. Jesus heals a guy, and the Pharisees conclude that he can't be God because he's healing a guy. And others say, well, how can he heal if he's not God? Which is a legitimate question, right? And so in this story, what you'll see is the people that have the most education also have the hardest hearts. I'm not saying that education leads to a hard heart, so you should drop out of school. I'm not saying that. But what I am telling you, listen, what I am telling you is that um, there's a place in Scripture that says knowledge puffs up. Remember that passage? Knowledge puffs up. So sometimes information and intellect and education, if it doesn't lead to heart change, it leads to a calloused, hardened heart. And, and you don't see things that should be right in front of you. You can't see things that should be so obvious to you. And so these men are so versed in the law, and they have large portions of it memorized, but they fail to see something so basic that Jesus healed a blind man. Therefore, he might, he must be God. He must be God. Look at verse six, uh, 18. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents. Now the parents are being called in of the man who had received his sight and asked them, is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but how he now sees, we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He's of age. He'll speak for himself. So not even the parents are dodging the question because they're scared of the Pharisees. Verse 22, his parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue, which is like their church before they knew about Jesus. Therefore, his parents said, he's of age, ask him. So instead of everyone throwing a party and even the parents being excited about this guy being set free from blindness, all everyone wants to talk about is how did he get this way, right? How did this man get healed? How this happened? Who did this? Who's responsible for this? This guy gets healed and everyone's walking around asking, who did this? Who's responsible? They ask the blind guy, how is it that you can now see? They ask his parents, is this your son? How is it that he now sees? And this guy's sitting there thinking, well, does anyone care about the fact that now I can see? Does anyone care that I, I've been healed? That's kind of the big deal here. Look at verse 22. The, the passage tells us why the parents react this way. Because they fear people more than they fear God. Everyone fears someone. You either fear God or you fear, you fear man. You fear him or you fear them. The Jews said if anyone confesses Jesus as Christ, they're going to be expelled, kicked out of the synagogue, which is their church before they knew about Jesus or knew that he was God. And I wonder if, if that same kind of fear affects us. 
What are the areas of your life? What are the relationships? What are the groups of people? Listen, that you would get kicked out of, not maybe literally, not school necessarily, but what are the groups of people, friendship groups, cliques, teams, um, associations, what are the things that you might get kicked out of relationally if you confess Jesus Christ as Lord? If people know that you're a Christian, what are the things in your life that you get expelled from? Maybe not literally in a literal sense, but just they would turn their back on you because of your confession about Jesus. What are those places for you? In verse 23, um, we see the parents put everything back on their son because they're worried and they fear, they fear man more than they fear God. In that day, there were two kinds of uh, getting kicked out. Excommunication, they called it. You're getting kicked out of the synagogue. There were two ways that would happen. There's a 30-day excommunication. That's just 30 days, right? Very simple. Um, then there's also a permanent excommunication. I want you to see what would happen if somebody was kicked out permanently from the synagogue. Here's what that meant for them. That means they would have no part in social, religious, legal life of the community. The family would treat you as dead. You could not buy food at a local store, local shop. No Jew could do business with you. If you died, you would not get a funeral. You're forbidden to attend services, and you're branded as a traitor. You are not allowed to make sacrifices or read the scriptures. This is the price someone would pay in that day if they confess Jesus Christ as the Son of God. I read a story this week about a guy named, uh, his last name is funny to pronounce, but his first name is Harry Buchelstein. He's a, um, yeah, I warned you. Um, he's a pastor in Los Angeles, and he's, uh, he's Jewish, comes from a Jewish family, but he became a Christian at the age of 16. His family warned him that if he became a Christian, they would force him to leave his home. He still became a Christian, and they still kicked him out of his home at the age of 16. He ends up spending the next few years in an orphanage. Imagine still having parents, but having to live in an orphanage because of your faith. And they're treating you as you no longer exist. In fact, his family went a step further and they purchased a burial plot in a graveyard. They bought a gravestone, put his date of birth on the gravestone and his date of death, the day he became a Christian, on that gravestone. He is dead to them. That man is a pastor in Los Angeles today. So confessing Jesus Christ as Lord can lead to drastic consequences for for many people. And it may not look that way for you, but there are consequences that we experience in confessing Christ as Lord. For some of you in the room, I know that this very thing is keeping you from becoming a Christian. Like you're, you're not, you would not consider yourself a believer yet. You would not consider yourself a follower of Christ yet. And it's because of this very reason. Because you think, I, I had to sacrifice that friendship, that relationship, they would turn their back on me if I did that. I, I can't do that. You, you fear man more than you fear God. For other people in the room, you're a believer, but you're not living boldly because you fear man more than you fear God. I'm not telling you to go and be um, an obnoxious, arrogant Christian. 
I'm not saying that. But what are the ways that God wants you to live boldly for your faith? What are the ways that God wants you to fear him and put the fear of man aside? So in verses, uh, I'll summarize this very quickly, verses 24 to 34 for you. Summary basically goes like this. The Pharisees confront this man, and he confesses that Jesus Christ is God, and so they kick him out, just like they said they would. And so imagine the boldness it took for this man to stand up for his beliefs, because here's a guy who's been blind since birth, and his entire life people have thought that he sinned in the womb, or his parents sinned, Therefore, he's born this way. And so, not only is he blind, and there's a separation between him and other people, but they think it's his fault. So he's, he's been an outcast his entire life. And so just listen, look at me, look at me, everyone focus, listen. His entire life he's been an outcast. And now he can finally see, he's probably thinking, now that I can see, I'm finally going to be accepted, I'm, I'm finally going to have friends, I'm finally going to have a community only to find out that if he confesses Jesus Christ is the one who healed him and that Jesus Christ is God, he's going to be an outcast all over again. And here's what this man does. He's tasted it. He's lived it. He knows what it's like to be an outcast. And in spite of that fact, he still goes on to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And that Jesus Christ is the one that healed him. He's lived it. He's tasted it. He knows what it is to be on the outside looking in. And he still chooses to acknowledge the deity of Christ. Everyone fears someone. You either fear God or you fear man. Who do you fear more? Look at verse 35. Keep down 35. It says, Jesus heard that they had cast him out. And having found him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, and who is he, sir? So he's not quite sure who Jesus is yet, that I may believe in him. And Jesus said to him, you have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. And he said, Lord, I believe, and I believe, and he worshiped him. So he's not totally sure who Jesus is yet, but he, when he finds out, he falls on his face in worship, and he says, I believe And this is how salvation always happens. Salvation always happens not by simply praying a prayer, coming forward to the church service, but it happens through belief. Putting your faith and trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Putting your faith and trust in this situation in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus had not died yet. He didn't understand that just yet, right? The cross. This man didn't get all that just yet because it hadn't happened yet. But he put his faith in the person of Jesus Christ and he believed, put his faith in him. Look at verse 39. It says, Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. We're going to explain this. Don't worry. Verse 40. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind? And Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say, We see, your guilt remains. Now, this is a very confusing passage. You're probably thinking, like, why does my brain feel like it's tied up into a knot right now? So in in verse 39, I understand the first part of the passage because Jesus says, "Um, I came in the world to judge the world that those who do not see may see. I get that part. He set this guy free from blindness. 
but in those who see may become blind? What in the world is he talking about? Jesus just said, I, I came that so that those who see can become blind. What does that mean? And here's what he means by this. The next verse is a clue, verse 40. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things. So now they're starting to pick up what he's putting down, right? They're, they're, they're understanding what Christ is saying. They're saying, wait, wait a minute. Is he talking about us when he said that? Is he referring to us that maybe we're, we're blind? Is he, talking, is he referring to us? And so they're not too stupid. They understand what Jesus is saying to an extent. And then in verse 41, Jesus says, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. So more confusion, right? What Jesus means is this. If you acknowledge your guilt before him, meaning if you acknowledge your spiritual blindness before me, I will give you the ability to see spiritually. If you acknowledge your guilt before me, I'll give you the ability to see spiritually. But if you, if you say about yourself that you don't need me, if you say about yourself, no, 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 I can already see, I see just fine, then you're just confirming the fact that you're really blind. I've said before how every miracle has a spiritual meaning behind it. And so Jesus uses this man. Look at this. Watch this. Jesus uses this man who's blind from birth to convict the Pharisees and to put it back in their face, their own spiritual blindness. And so I want you to know this morning that you cannot see until you acknowledge your spiritual blindness. You cannot become a Christian until you fall on your face before God and say, God, I can't, I can't even see properly spiritually until you heal me. I don't have the ability in myself to even do that. And so what you see here, this man is born blind in the same way we are born blind spiritually. This man has an encounter with Jesus, and you and I need an encounter with Jesus. This man needs a miracle. You and I need a miracle in order to see. This man obeys in faith, and you and I have to obey in faith. I mean, imagine this. Jesus smeared spit and mud on this guy's face. That's just weird. And said, go wash in this pool. And this man obeyed. Jesus will tell you to do some really crazy things. Jesus Christ will, make you, will ask you to do some things that you're like, that doesn't make any sense. That doesn't make sense to me. I don't know why you're telling me to do that, Jesus. And yet this man obeys in faith. This man was washed clean. We need to be washed clean. People did not believe this was the same guy. When Jesus Christ transforms you, people are not going to believe you're the same person. This whole miracle is about spiritual blindness. The most blind people in the story are those who can actually see, and it's the Pharisees. And so the question I want to ask, leave you with is, um, the statement I want to leave you with is, sometimes the most educated people, sometimes head knowledge blinds us from seeing our need for heart change. This is what the Pharisees were guilty of. And so the question I want to ask you, because here's the deal, this whole Miracle is directed at the church people, the synagogue people, the Pharisees. And so many of you have been raised in the church, you've been brought up in the church, and are you someone who you think you can see spiritually, but in reality, 
you were spiritually blind to your sin. Is that you? Is that you? Go ahead and finish up with your discussion questions at your tables.